this is your host, Rosaria Kozar. Please always remember to consult with your physicians before attempting any changes to your treatment plan. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Living with Scanxiety. I am your host, Rosaria Kozar. Today I have with me Dr. May Carter, a primary care physician from Arizona Institute of Medicine and Pediatrics. She received her medical degree from the University of Arizona and eventually became Phoenix Children's Hospital's chief resident in internal medicine. Besides being heavily involved as a parent, she is also passionate about her profession. So back to you, the parents. Why would you even consider going to a pediatrician when you'll be hospitalized and treated by your oncology team? Well, that's precisely why we are here today. Dr. May Carter will speak to this. It might not cross your mind, but after diagnosis, you might think, where does your pediatrician fit in in journal? After all, when you check in for emergency room appointments in the state of Massachusetts, you have to tell them your primary care doctor's name. So where do you go from there? Or better yet, where does your pediatrician go? So with that said, I welcome Dr. May Carter to the show. Hi, happy to be here today. We're so happy to have you. And I have to start off by asking, uh, because I think it's just so amazing when people get involved with children and medicine. What drew you into pediatrics? Well, originally, when I was going through medical school, I actually did um, a rotation. And one of my mentors was a pediatric intensive care doctor. And initially, Um, I was really worried about going into pediatrics because I love children. I love interacting with children. And I was really scared about having to deal with children in pain or children sick. And he told me that one of the most rewarding things about working with children is almost always they get better and leave the ICU. That was for his you know, specialty. And it's true. Most of the children that we take care of do get better and do, you know, recover from whatever they're, they're um, suffering from. And for adults, that's not quite the same thing. But when I was going through, um, I decided that I would become a doctor of both internal medicine and pediatrics. So I'm actually double boarded in both. So it's kind of a unique perspective. Mm -hmm. And so um, in terms of what we're talking about today, I get to take care of both children and then also children who've been diagnosed with pediatric cancer when they were children and who are now adults. So it's kind of a, a fun thing for me to be able to take care of people through their lifespan. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. That's really impressive. It takes someone very special, like I said earlier, to get into that because it can be scary, but I'm happy that your your mentor talked you into that. So that's great. Um, and since you're familiar with it, but I want to ask you, once a child is diagnosed with cancer, what happens? What's your role? Yeah. Um, most of the time when children are diagnosed with cancer, they're kind of immediately transported to a different level in terms of the number one um, team that they're working with is usually their oncologist, their radiation oncologist, the nurses who work at the oncology clinic. That becomes kind of their care world. Um, As a pediatrician, I am more at the periphery at that point because most of the day-to-day decisions comes down to the oncology team. 
However, um, during the time when they're initially diagnosed, I do try to reach out and um, offer support to the parents, check on the kid. If the kid's older and the teenage years, we'll try to talk to the kid and just make sure they know that if they need any other support or resources that we are available to them. It's kind of hard because a lot of times for the kids before that, they've um, not necessarily been interacting with the healthcare system in an intensive way like it is when you get diagnosed with cancer. And so some of the times we have to help with that transition. And I do this with all ages of patients, but I always tell them if you have questions or you're not sure what you're supposed to do or if you need help getting something, we can be a resource for you. A lot of times they don't need that because the oncology team has case managers and social workers and things and other people to help navigate the system. But sometimes it can be scary. And so it's nice to have a familiar face to touch in with. So it's nice that you have that involvement with them and you can interact with them. And so when they do go to an emergency room visit, I'm assuming from what you just said, you do get involved a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we do get notification if they've been admitted to the hospital. Um, And then sometimes we'll reach out and just make sure they're okay. Sometimes we'll ask them to come in for a follow up. but most of the time, day to day, it's going to be the oncology team. That's their primary resource. So if kids, um, like during cold and flu season, if they start having a fever or if they start having symptoms of an illness, that's who they reach out to first instead of the pediatrician like they normally would if they weren't dealing with the cancer at the time. And that's okay. That's reasonable. <clears throat> there are side effects and risk of infection that are different for these children than in when before when you were more just routine care. And and so that part of it is more taken over by the oncology team, which it should be at that point. Some of the interesting questions is what about preventative care? So if you're dealing with younger infants and they're due for their shots, who does the vaccinations? So actually for a lot of um, these kids, their oncology team takes over and will vaccinate when they're due for vaccinations. And then we'll decide if there are vaccinations that are more risky because they're either killed live virus or have a risk of causing inflammation of the brain or things like that, they can decide this one we don't recommend at this point because it's going to cause side effects, either because they don't have an immune system or because they're at risk of brain issues from whatever they're dealing with. And so it becomes kind of like your one stop shopping for everything at that age group. And then we kind of resume and pick up and, and figure out what's been done um, after the child is discharged for farther along in their cancer journey where they're in remission. And that's the happy part where we get to pick back up and, and touch base with them and try to figure out kind of where they are, what they need going forward. Yeah, wow. Um, I remember going through my journey and exactly like what you had just mentioned their immunizations were all covered. Uh, and I say there, I mean, all the kids <laughs> that were at the same clinic were were covered by oncology teams there. So you kind of touched upon it where you were talking about immune compromised children in the pediatric office. Uh, what are some of the concerns behind that? And is there anything, and more importantly, is there anything being done 
to circumvent that issue? I know you're in Arizona, United States, but um, is there anything in the medical community right now that you know of? Um, Yeah, I mean, right now, our biggest concern for any kid that's immune compromised coming into the office is um, the risk, to be honest, of unvaccinated children. So unvaccinated children that could be carrying um, vaccine preventable diseases are a risk for our children that don't have an immune system to fight off um, infections. And so one of the ones that we've seen more recently is a measles outbreak. So you can imagine if you had someone who was in the early stages of measles and that didn't necessarily have a lot of symptoms, but they could still transmit the virus to other individuals, then that could be a disaster with, with someone who has a very low functioning immune system and couldn't fight it off. And so there are a lot of pediatric offices that are actually um, just making a ban, basically, of um, unvaccinated children so that they don't risk that in their practice. So that they say, if you're not vaccinated, you can't come and get care here. And that's pretty controversial in the medical world because we do want to offer care to all all individuals, but it's also weighing the risk of making other children sick because you're not vaccinated. So that is a kind of an issue. And personally, in our office, we don't ban unvaccinated uh, children from our practice. Um, We do encourage at every visit them to reconsider vaccination. And then for children that are immune compromised, um, our policy is just to for them to come straight in the door and actually come up to the front of the desk and say, we need to get put into a room right away. And even if they're not ready to be necessarily checked in or their vitals taken, they're put into a separate room, separate from their general lobby. <clears throat> and that seems to work fairly well in order to try to give them a level of protection so they're not exposed as much in terms of time. Oh, that, that's great. And, and parents out there, you'll find the same thing with uh, emergency rooms. As soon as you walk in, you have to be your child's advocate. Tell them your child has uh, cancer. Not all children with cancer will lose their hair. So you might have a child that doesn't look like they have cancer. But you need to run up and say, hey, I have an immune compromised child. They need to be put in a separate room immediately. And um, that's something that you really do need to stick up for yourself. So thank you for pointing that out. And that's really interesting that they're they're kind of cutting off non-vaccinated children. So that's thank you for pointing that out as well. And do you have any suggestions you'd like to add for parents of newly diagnosed children? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think one of the things is, is that I tell parents um, a lot of times it's just to take it day by day. And so it can be really overwhelming to think long term or to think of, oh, we have all this coming up or this is going to happen or all the risks or all the benefits. Um, So usually it's best to just say, okay, what do we have to get accomplished today? What's on the schedule for today? And then just take it day by day. Um, The second thing I really recommend is for parents to know that they're going to be really stressed out and really tired and that their family and their extended family is going to want to help. And sometimes they don't know what to do. And so sometimes it's hard because we're used to kind of like taking care of ourselves as adults. We have to reach out and say, hey, 
I don't feel like I can handle doing a load of laundry today. Can you come over and do a load of laundry? Simple things like that, because people without direction usually aren't going to come up with that on their own. But most of them are completely willing to say, yeah, I can do that for you. That's something I can do. Or, hey, I need you to like make me something to bring over for dinner. Little concrete things like that help your life a lot and then make it hopeful for other people in your family to, to help you to help nurture you. And then also to realize that as a caregiver, you're going to need some time during the week to give yourself a little time to take a break. And that's hard to do because you feel like you're caring for this person and they are your world and you need to be there every second of every day. That's not the truth. (laughs) Sometimes they're going to be sleeping. They're not going to even know. So if someone else can sit with them, for example, while you go and like take a shower or get something to eat, Those are important self-care things. You can't take care of other people if you don't put a little time into taking care of yourself. And that's hard because then as a parent, you feel selfish, but it's not selfish. You need to understand that in order to take care of someone else, you have to do a little taking care of yourself. Um, And then the third thing is just to make sure that you are your child's advocate. Just like you said, too many times in our, our medicine establishment, People get wrapped up in routines. They get wrapped up in just getting people through. They have an idea that, you know, we just want to be in and out. If you have any concerns, if you feel like you have questions, if you feel like this is not the right thing, you have to speak up. Your child can't do that. And so you have to be the one to go, wait a second, I don't understand this. Or like you said, when you're walking into an ER, my child has cancer. We need to be put aside in a separate room. Things like that are scary at first, but then with practice, it gets a lot easier because you realize you're the person that's the voice for your child. So it can be empowering to know that you have that ability to do that for your child. That's all great advice. And I really appreciate you laying that out there for the, the people listening. And like you had said, it is really difficult at first, but all of those things said, what happens after the child goes into remission? Um, when the child goes into remission, they transition um, back into their general pediatrician's care. And so their routine care becomes in the span or the coverage of the general pediatrician. And then they still keep close contact with their oncology team. But every year, it gets a little less frequent. So in the beginning, it's every few months, and then it'll transition to um, every year usually, and sometimes then to every couple years. Um, But it's important because we have, um, I'd say, 90% of children who are diagnosed with cancer are surviving past the five-year mark. And so that's important because over time, they're going to have different needs than other children. As they grow older, we do know that there is a risk of children developing what we call secondary cancers um, from their treatment from their first cancer. So there's been a lot of studies related to, well, what kind of is the cause of that and what can we do about that? And um, more recently, the studies have shown that two things seem to really influence that, um, radiation exposure and then um, cisplatin, which is a specific medication which used 
in the treatment of solid tumors and in um, bloodborne cancers. And so um, those are the things that seem to really play into developing cancers later on. Luckily, the studies have also shown that kids treated in the 1990s and the, the aughts have a lot less risk of some of those secondary cancers because radiation technology has become much better than it was in the 70s and 80s. So we're able to give a much um, tighter beam with a lot less scatter. And so they get a lot less total body exposure and the amounts that we're able to use are less than one in the past. And so because of that, your risk of cancer is slightly decreased, which is good, it's good news but we still need to make sure that those kids, teens and adults still get screened regularly because their risk of cancer can be from two to five times as high as the general population. So the big ones we're looking out for are for women, it's breast cancer uh, increases, um, skin cancers, things like squamous cell cancer and basal cell cancer from sites of radiation, and then um, solid tumors like renal um, carcinomas from the body taking the chemotherapy and then processing and getting rid of it. And so the kidney is what does that in our body. And so that's another site that can be affected. And then long-term, some of our medications can affect the heart and the lungs and cause um, risk of fibrosis in the lungs or cardiomyopathy in the heart. So oftentimes we have to do extra screenings for our teens and adults who have survived childhood cancer. Um, but I'm hoping Every, every uh, time we get new strides in cancer therapy, that we have a, a decrease in secondary cancers because of it. It's great. At, in, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it's great that since the 90s on that because of the, the types of radiation used, there's less cancer. Uh, but with that, should parents... Anxiety, scanxiety, PTSD, all of those things come associated post-treatment and survival. Once you make it that five years out, do you kind of try to help uh, alleviate that? Or how should the parents act? Like, you know, oh, my child has this, my child has that. Like, how should they, how should the parents yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is, of course, a natural reaction. You've gone through this really dramatic and draining um, uh, journey, and you've survived. And now it's like, I'm at the end of the tunnel. But wait, there's the whole rest of the life. How do I interpret things? So you're right, like, okay, now the child has a fever. Do I go in and get it checked out? Is it going to be a cold? It's hard to readjust and think about things not from the immediacy of everything could kill me. <laughs> so I think it is, it's part of my job is to like, you know, check out children, make sure we reassure the parents, okay, this looks like a routine thing. I don't think we need to worry about this. The most of that is, you know, just making sure they feel confidence. It can be hard to trust yourself again and know what is bad and what is okay. And sometimes you just can't do that as a parent. You have to trust your pediatrician. And we're okay. We get more frequent visits a lot of times with the survivors of cancer because they're not sure what is their new normal. And, and that's all right. Um, 
But over time, you get more confident. And over time, the child gets more confident, even to the point of being like, I don't need any more tests. I'm fine. Go away. That's usually what happens in our teenage and young adults. And so it's just a matter of making sure we, we connect with them on a regular basis and educate that, yes, you're going to have to get screened. You're going to need to have a primary care doctor every year that you're alive as an adult to make sure they can check on you. Um, so you don't get to be a 20 year old that doesn't have a provider for 10 years and then goes back into it. So that's part of what we hope to communicate to them is, yeah, it's you're good. Live your life, but still get checked occasionally for the things that could happen in the future. That makes complete sense on their part. And I have to ask on your end, does the level of suspicion arise or um increase because they had cancer as you continue treatment? Oh, of course. Anytime we've had someone who has survived cancer and they have maybe back pain or they start having headaches, our level of suspicion is always going to be lowered in terms of, well, maybe we should do an imaging study to look at this because we know your history. Yeah, that for sure happens. It might be actually to our judgment. Maybe we're doing studies that we don't need to do, but we always are on the more conservative side of checking more often. And then we second guess ourselves. Do I need to do this? Should I do this? And that's normal too. And I don't think we have good answers in terms of how often necessarily should we, you know, for certain symptoms, be looking for um, secondary cancers because there hasn't been enough um, children that have survived in large amounts to study, to say, what about the road going forward? And then as treatment changes, you know, the risk can change. And so that'll alter what we do sometimes. So sometimes you just have to kind of go, okay, what makes sense in this situation? But I have to say, at the same time, I think hearing that for the the people out there that are listening, that's probably really comforting to know that you're on our team. And even if there are tests that are, are done that maybe you wouldn't have done in somebody that never had cancer, I think it's comforting. Uh, I would imagine it's comforting for the people out there listening. So I really appreciate you um, being on our team. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I know you have to you've, uh, get to your patients. And I, um, again, appreciate you taking your time to, to spend out here and tell us the pediatrician's role. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for hosting this. This is a wonderful podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And just as a reminder, you're listening to Living with Scanxiety with your host, Rosaria Kozai. Subscribe to my podcast and also visit my website, www.livingwithscanxiety.org.